Okay, so um, episode six? No, episode five. five. <laughs> Great start. Um, so last week's episode was uh, testing. Do you have any uh, follow-up you'd like to make about that? Uh, that it was a bit of a beast yeah. <laughs> on the re-listen, yeah. but it is a complex topic. Uh, and also how hard Marjorie's Law was to write. Mm. Really difficult. Definitely. Way more difficult than I thought. And the more I thought about it, the more... The only thing I could formalise at all was the parameters to deciding. Yeah. And not... And then I just know what to do with them and whether I should write tests. So, like, how long will it take me to write the tests? How much... How likely are we to change the code? Things like that. Yeah. Who will shout at me? Will I be disappointed in myself? Will someone die? Those kind of things. But I... I just know what to do with them, but I can't. I think it's because not those things don't have units. Maybe it's probabilities yeah. most of the time, but yeah, which is that's that that's the one that we link to in the end. I did unitize all of them. That's not a word, but unitize, unitize, because <laughs> um, that's what the problem I was having with it. I tried to write it out as a formula, and I was like, "But you can't add these things together because no. the units don't line up." No. So then I standardized them all to have units that you could do that with. So it was like it was basically man hours, man hours per feature, yes, or cost, i.e., monetary value. Yeah, it it makes it obvious how uncertain software development is. Yeah, but we'll include it in the show notes of this show and the last show if you want to have a look. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think I think it puts down the things to think about. The actual yeah. equation, like you say, the equations themselves perhaps are less useful, but. If you want to see it in a mathematical way, I guess. Sort of common sense, or maybe mm. just sense, maybe not common sense, I don't know. But you kind of just know what to do because you think, oh, someone will get mad or, I don't know, but it's hard. I think like we said, right, the, the, if you've listened to the episode, there's a lot of back and forth on everything, right? Like it's it's very hard to say concretely, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, that was one of my main things on the re-listen was were we not protest enough in big organisations, I think. Mm. And I think and the other thing that I thought about that I realised when I was thinking about if you work in a big organisation and we were discussing how you probably should do testing, how why do, why do big organisations not do that and how could they? Because quite a lot of them don't and especially like we said during the 90s and the noughties maybe mm. they didn't. And I think the only answer I really have that's concrete is kind of a cultural change from the top of a company. So they hire someone who is like, this is the best way of doing it and they make them CTO or something and then they kind of just sort of say, then you have a culture in the team and it, you have a, you know, which I think is where a lot of the, is it dogma? Is that the right word? But a lot of like these strong things that we were condemning, I think that's where it comes from. People that have worked in those kind of teams where they need a really strong sense of, we don't deliver features without tests because otherwise the business just yeah make them deliver loads of stuff and then they end up with like this, you know, loads of debt and it's bad for the business in like the medium to long term. So perhaps that's why there are people that are just kind of so prescriptive. It's that interface to the business, I think, right? If that how those people describe testing to the business yeah. then impacts the business's feeling on tests and then that comes back round to when they be are being unreasonable about yeah delivering features right yeah i was i was thinking it's really a a test is kind of like a feature but it's almost second order so it's not like a first order feature is like someone says can you make that button red 
Mm. And the test is verifying that that button's red if you should test that. But it's so the, the, the user or the customer doesn't really see it. But it is it is a feature. It's almost a feature for the team that are building the thing because it gives you properties of it kind of will define how quickly you can build things in the future and how likely things are to break. And those are things that those customers will care about as well. Just not directly. Just not directly. And they will care in the future. I mean, I've been in a lot of teams where they're like, why the hell does it take six weeks to build this thing? And the answer was because for the last three years, we've, you know, not not done testing and other things. And yeah. Now we're paying for it. So I think... You've got to pay it at some point. It's whether you pay it up front with tests or later with slow change, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But it's basically the trade-off, isn't it? If you build big things. I think that some of this microservices stuff is like another way of kind of getting around that. I was thinking about that as well and um, how it's turned out that everybody's ended up building HTTP APIs and WebSockets for real time. And JSON usually, although sometimes things like Protobuf and other mm. formats, but that's become almost a standard interface for like two bits of code talking to one another. And obviously, you can decouple things quite nicely. And if you have like a HTTP RESTful API, and then you say, oh, we want to rebuild this component, the interface for it is very well defined in HTTP and all of that stuff. You can maybe like when we were talking about scaling a startup and how you definitely shouldn't write tests at the beginning and then you need to. If you've broken it into lots of API calls, you probably actually stand a slightly better chance because you can pick them off in groups yeah, if, or if one each, at a time. Yeah, if each uh, URL is like a different microservice, you could rewrite them with tests. Yeah. Easier, right, rather than the monolith yeah. of having to rewrite the whole thing in one go. Yeah, or even if you had a monolith of like 20 APIs, you can probably... Oh, migrate yeah. one or two. I was thinking you might be like, well, we'll do it in a different technology now or something. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. So having that, those mini, those separate pieces, right, you can... Whereas if you just have code, which was kind of the way before, then it's harder. But mm. I was sort of thinking some of these things do help. Hard problem, though. Yeah. Really yeah, hard. Definitely hard. And, and there is definitely a justification for not writing them. It's just, it's an easy way out that you have to be aware, I guess, of, of what you're the risks you're taking by not writing tests, they're definitely justifiable in a lot of cases. You just have to be happy with that risk. Yeah. I encourage everybody to learn how to do it and then choose not to like we do. <laughs> yeah. I th- if if that's the right decision. But I think well, One thing I didn't to... ask you, actually, and I did want to ask you, mm. I mentioned what I use when I'm in Java. What, what uh, testing library do you use in JavaScript? Uh, I There are a few decent ones, and I am a Mocha Chai person. So Mocha is like the test runner thing and chai is like the it's a like ham crest in java so it lets you say to be equals and things yeah, like that yeah um and they're both interesting names yeah there there's diff- there's like th- chai supports three different ways of naming things so you can have like should expect and they're like three completely different ways of naming but they're both okay. really really cool. good libraries and they Do they come together do you use both together? Yeah, they're, they're very... You can... I don't know if you can use Chai without Mocha. I think you can. I think they're, they're, they're very commonly used together because Chai is just about asserting things. And so you can assert things in any... So yeah. I'd imagine, actually, you can use it with, like, Jest and other things. And then something else, the Mocha bit is just picking up those assertions and reporting the results. Because of the ecosystem 
of JavaScript being there's a lot of test frameworks. A lot of them were rubbish. Some of them were good. And now we're in a pretty good place. And give me the stuff over JUnit any day, I'd say. But whilst we're on the topic of testing, there's something else which isn't really to do with whether you should write tests or not. But I'm a really big fan of something called, in, J, in JUnit, it's called parameterized tests, which is, it's a feature of JUnit. Right. Which is basically, not talking about JUnit anymore, but you write a bunch of test cases, which might be some sort of just pure structure. So you might have an array of like inputs and then the expected outputs. So you'll have like an array and it will say the input is you know, one, two, three, and you're testing your average function. So the expected output is two. And then the next item in your array would be like the inputs are going to be, you know, an array of one and the output expected output is one. And then you can run the same test over and over again on the on those inputs and expected outputs. Oh, uh, okay. <clears throat> and I'm a really big fan of that. So you might have... I don't think... I've actually never used that feature in JUnit. It, so yeah, it's a specific feature in JUnit, but in Mokachai, you can just write a for loop around a test basically. So you write a loop, you literally say, here are my 10 different cases I care about. It's it's really well for functional, pure functional things. Mm. But you say, here are the inputs, here are the expected outputs. You could have like a hundred of them. And then it will just loop over the same test, which goes, I'm going to call the function with the inputs and check that it equals the expected output. Yeah. So you just write one test basically, but then you run it a hundred times with a hundred different parameters. That's good. And then you might have the same thing for exception cases. So you might just have a test which is like, I expect an exception to be thrown. And then the array is like, you know, if you pass in null, or if you, you just have like null, because that's an invalid input, you know, not a number, because that's an invalid input. And then you might have 10 cases for that. Yeah. So a lot of functions when you're doing them, you might end up writing sort of three tests, but you might throw multiple parameters through each of them. That's pretty really good. It's yeah. basically, uh, you know, dry, do not repeat yourself. Yeah. It's, ba- it's basically just a kind of refactor rather than writing... 30 tests which have basically the same code yeah. but they have different inputs you just write one and then you just chuck loads of different things into them yeah i, sh- I should uh, i should check that out because i feel like a lot of tests i write i like that so yeah it's a co- it's a really cool concept and it, it's yeah junit is called parameterized tests and it has it as an explicit feature but a lot of test frameworks don't but in dyna- dynamic languages you just put you just loop over the like the inputs and the expected outputs and write the test in the middle of the loop. Yeah, and then it yeah. would just call the test like 30 times or something. Because another thing about tests, which I think is really important, there's a lot of this should and expect stuff. And um, I think as long as when they print to the console, they look nice, I'm happy. That's kind of my... If one of them breaks, I want to know which one. Yeah. I want to have a good indication of roughly what went wrong. I want them to be grouped by functionality and indented. You know what I mean? So yeah. you have, I'm testing this function and then all the tests are indented in there and maybe you indent twice if that's appropriate. Um, but yeah, I think Mokachai lets you change, if you're parameterizing the test, it lets you, you can change the test name. So you could say, for this input, I would expect, you can write that in your test. And yeah. The tests will look nice when they're printed out as well. Yeah. I think JUnit has the same thing. I don't think I've ever run JUnit on the console. It's just built into Eclipse. So. Oh yeah, yeah. So you just get a you, you just get a window with the um, yeah. You like still get nice the names tree though, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. The name's just the method name, right? So those are my two pro tips for testing. Mm. I don't have any more. That's it. I'm out. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. I think um, the chai piece with ham uh, and the equivalent in Hamcrest is is nice because it makes the tests a lot more readable. Mm. I think using those matches makes tests that you can actually 
reason about. I think the whole matcha thing is actually one of the... You were saying in the last episode about how... You, you were, I think you sort of alluded to it. You were kind of saying if you haven't written tests often, it can be quite slow when you start. Yeah. And I took that to mean Hamcrest specifically because the API, it's true with all of these sorts of things. So it's basically a thing which lets you say should be equal to or something in quite a English kind of way. Yeah, it makes you write, it allows you to write an English sentence with functions. Yeah. In Java specifically. So it would be like... So you can do like assert that is the name of the function. It takes two arguments. Yeah. First one is the thing you want to execute. The right hand side is then what you're expecting out. And you can say, and then it has a function called is function called equal to yeah which you put inside the is so you end up reading it like an english like so, a sentence so, so it'll be like dot is dot equals to or like yeah and you get all and there's all different ones for like asserting about dates and yeah you know, does a hash map have a key yes all those sort of ones, so yeah. it'll be like dot has key yeah and all these different ones but they probably they're great because when you're done you end up with this beautiful english looking sentence yeah and they're rubbish because remembering the API if you don't do them every week is yep. nearly impossible because it's like, basically it a ha- sentence. Does it have... Yeah, it's like, what's the has key one? Because I don't think it is necessarily no, has key. No, yeah. And then you've got to import static everything so you get it looking nice in Java anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you import everything as static, then you can actually write it without any dot notation or matches dot. Yeah. So then it, it looks really good. Yeah. But you've got to import static We can include stuff. an example of beautiful ham crest. I think the the one actually from last week I think has some in that I linked from my oh, yeah. those open source. We can link it again. We, we'll relink it. Okay, let's start to, let's stop talking about tests. I think. Yeah, that's enough from tests uh, because otherwise it's another episode of testing. <laughs> no one wants that. So, what we're going to talk about this week, Rich? Cloud stuff. But cloud stuff. Well, I'm gonna, well put. A cloud stuff, but cloud is a... T- I don't like the term cloud. I don't know about you, but I'm not... I think it's too broad and people it, have misused it a lot. Is there a better word? No. Services? <laughs> There's a lot of... Work. We could have a whole episode on things that are misnamed. Yeah. AI, DevOps, <laughs> ML, that's a, <laughs> blockchain, all these buzzwords. Yeah. But what I mean is... So when I say cloud, I mean... Software which is running on other people's servers, which is available usually on the open internet. So you could just go on any internet connection and get them. So that's things like AWS or Azure, so like cloud hosting stuff. Yeah. But also things like even maybe Google Docs, Dropbox, Google Drive, and then more programmery focused things. So kind of APIs like Stripe. Um, Airtable, which is a UI, but it's very it has really good APIs as well. So traditionally, there there are three categories, right? There's infrastructure as a service, mm. platform as a service, yes. software as a service. Yes, there's probably other AASs. All, all the as a services, basically. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's a better name. As a service. As a service. Yeah. Yeah. Ba- basically, everything as a service, and what. So this has pr- pretty much been, I would say, maybe you'll disagree with me, the biggest change since we graduated and became pro is that these things weren't, they were kind of just getting started slash they were they were just sort of in the early stages and now they're ridiculously dominant. And AWS is a big part, you know, big multi, multi-billion dollar business, I think. And Yeah, so big they want, they're thinking about spinning it out of Amazon to be a separate yeah, company. Which is fair because it's ridiculously... It yeah, it's interesting, hot, it? if you think back to 2010, 2009 maybe, 
yeah, I think I think I think you're right. You know, it's nearly ten years ago, right? And it's amazing how now you would not, you wouldn't. I think considering running stuff on your own hardware in your own in your own house or data center, yeah. particularly if you're a new company, is not, it would be a non-start. It's so low down your list. It's a, There's so many other ways of solving that problem now that didn't a, used to exist. It would be a red flag. And so the the plus side of this is that some clever people or small groups of people in certain businesses have solved some difficult problems and the rest of us just get to use all their hard work and it saves hopefully a lot of time and you end up with software which is better because you because they can it's kind of like economies of scale or uh, division of labor i suppose they they build aws once rather than 30 different or like you know a million different organizations running their hardware in their own ways and you know it's for my someone i know was running um an email server a few years ago on um sort of on a cloud platform but their server was actually physically running so it was in the cloud but the ser- it wasn't managed so it wasn't like Google Mail. It was or, a physical server. Yeah, it was like a Mac. server with ports and wow. it was running. And their email was going down all the time. And we switched over for to, you know, Google, whatever it's called now, Google for Business. I think yeah, it's called. Google, yeah. But, you know, the thing I mean, that Gmail for Business. And obviously that has like an SLA of being up 99.9% of the time. And guess what? There's been no problems since yeah. we switched. So it's kind, of, it's kind of twofold. It's like a productivity gain. And then it's also the end product can be better especially in terms of downtime and things messing up i mean obviously there have been some out- aws has had some outages in the last few years and has brought down half the internet with it yeah but by and large i think the uptime of most of that stuff has been better and so the thing i wanted to talk about was whether given that big transition and that this stuff is available there are jobs where you can't use all of those things or you can use a, a subset of those things. I think bigger companies are really starting to embrace what was it called infrastructure as a service. Yeah. So I'm hearing of a lot of financial institutions in London. If you're a uh, non-UK listener, London is mainly, in my opinion, a financial services town which uses yeah. a lot of software, but those organisations aren't like tech first. So it's not really like Silicon Valley in that way, which is like got a lot of tech first because Silicon Valley companies will always use the always use the cloud. Yeah, you don't hear of a new startup or even like Netflix are using AWS, and they're a really big business. Yeah, but if you go to a big bank in London, how much? What percentage of the cloud are they using? But I think even those guys are starting to use AWS now. Yeah, so a lot. I know a lot of uh, investment banks here are looking at hybrid. They're yes. called hybrid solutions, whereby you connect your existing data centers that you own or rent space out of to um, a, a, a Amazon or Azure. And then you, to you, it's one holistic network, but some of it is being run on other people's infrastructure and some of it's being run on yours. Yeah, because I guess there are regulatory and other risks of leaking data. And I actually think the biggest, I mean, I know we're going to talk a lot about it, but one of the things to consider and things that I hadn't considered until we started using it at my current place, AWS, the cost model is quite difficult at scale. Like, I don't really understand how Netflix can use AWS. And not be bankrupt. And not be bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, like, because the pay-as-you-go costs, the costs, the monthly costs means that, you know, it, it doesn't scale up that well. Because at some point, right, 
for, I mean, are, yeah, this is just an example, but if you buy, a, if you have a, a rack in a data center, that's going to cost you an amount a month, and that's a monthly cost. It's very transparent. You know what you're getting. Yeah, well, yeah, but that, that's a monthly cost. You can't get away from that. The problem comes from when you want to buy hardware. Because if you buy a server, you spend 20 grand on a server, you then own that server for as long as you want it. Yeah. If you want it for a year and then upgrade it, yeah, that's probably not great value because, you know, divide it by monthly cost. It's going to be more than Amazon. But if you decide to keep it yeah. for five or six years because it's like, a, I don't know, something you're not that bothered about or, you know, it's not critical if it if it reboots every now and again, then it looking at it from a management budgetary point of view, it, the, the benefit case isn't quite there because, yeah, you save data center networking costs. But if you already have some physical hardware mm-hmm. or some physical data center space justifying the move to the cloud isn't as clear cut that mm. there are then benefits where you can say well actually we can for for workloads that are that burst up and down the cloud makes a lot of sense right because yeah. you're not saying well we'll buy these 10 servers but actually we only need 10 yeah once a week and the rest of the time we need one yes yeah, that's perfectly cloud. I mean, that's a great cloud migration strategy. But yeah. if you've got a piece of software that runs 24-7 uh, on a 16-core box that needs 64 gigabytes of RAM, i.e. maybe a database, for example, you might be like, well, we could just buy one, two of those servers, yeah. run them in parallel as a sort of cluster, and that's a fixed cost then for the next five years yeah. versus, well, it's you know we'll pick a particular Amazon um instance but that might not be big enough you might have to scale it up like you know you probably aren't going to scale it down and i just think it's it's something that i'm a big proponent of cloud services as we'll get on to but it's interesting in where i am now when we were looking at it from a monetary point of view it's not a clear cut particularly for server resources like that now when you move to platform as a service like amazon rds which is their database yeah, offering. Just get, just get a date. You don't, I mean, there are other benefits there that are not just the cost, right? Because you're getting things like, it, there's no server anymore that you need to manage. You're just getting an instance and it has an endpoint mm-hmm. and you can just connect to it. And those benefits are worth it. But again, that's under the assumption that you've got quite a small company. Because if you're in a big company, you're going to have database engineers. You're going to have infrastructure engineers. Yeah. And then you, it's like, what? I and mean, those guys will end up just managing Amazon for you. You can fire them all. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I don't think you can because I think you, at scale, I think you still have complexities in the cloud. Yeah, and you won't you won't be surprised to hear me say that if you fired all your database engineers, I'd be very happy. But, mm. um, well, we so, don't have any. Uh, yeah, excellent. <laughs> no, 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 I I don't like databases for the record. They're not. They're, I know they're they're a necessary evil, but data is always so hard and mm. pesky. But yeah, I I do know what you mean. Actually, is the the pricing of AWS? Everyone always says. Business people always say, oh, it saves us so much money and it's so cheap. Yet whenever I look at it for like personal projects at home, I mean, maybe from a business perspective, it's different. But I always think, gosh, like you said, a 16 core server with 64 gig of RAM, that's, that's going to cost you on yeah, AWS. Yeah. And the other thing is with their billing. It's opaque as well. Their billing is opaque as hell. And I, I once fiddled around with AWS for like a personal project, they billed me $1.99 for about two years because I couldn't figure how to turn... I couldn't <laughs> figure what had turned on or where to turn it off. When my credit card expired, that was the only time that basically that got turned off yeah. and that account got locked and banned. <laughs> and I was like, that's fine. They're not, I'm, they're not taking my money anymore. But it does seem... It's because it's not... I guess you're moving from a 
it's, it's, it's difficult. There's a lot of reasons for it. And, you know, one of the, the differences between, you know, if you're running inside an organization with infrastructure versus on Amazon, things that you get, if you have an internal network that you're running yourself, things that you don't get charged for, right, are networking mm-hmm. and storage to some degree. Because generally, if you're buying a server, you're going to buy some hard drives in it and you're going to then just have the, that, that storage. Uh, whereas obviously Amazon, if you if you if you store a terabyte, there's no fixed cost on that. You're going to be storing that terabyte and paying per month for as long as you want to store it. Mm. Whereas if you buy a one terabyte hard drive, you pay sixty pounds for it. Mm. Then you've got that sixty pounds. It's a sunk cost, and you just yeah. as long you could keep that for as long as that. It's, it's as almost well. like renting a car versus buying yeah. a car, isn't it? But then networking, well, you generally that's... assume is free mm. internally, right? Because you're like like in your house, you're like to get the data from my internet, so it, my router to my PC. Yeah. I'm not paying for that. But in Amazon's world, assuming you're not running everything entirely in Amazon, which I think is pretty much impossible, but not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go all in on Amazon. Then there are going to be in. They're going to be outbound charges that are going to cost you. And you know, if you're having, if it's an internet website, then everybody accessing your website is costing you money. Yeah, that's. That's something that's going to be... I mean, I've not really been involved with any of these sorts of things, but I can imagine the predictability of the what the bill's going to be in one model is very predictable and then the other model totally mm. isn't predictable. I mean, maybe you've got some stuff where you're thinking, I'm going to buy a server for five years. and But I guess also, if your requirements don't change, so you need a 16-core server with 64 gigs of RAM, in five years, if you're paying Amazon monthly, the price of that should have decreased because the same compute will get cheaper. Whereas if yeah, you buy so. it you'll have a server which is knackered and need a new one. Whereas with Amazon, yeah. they'll just be migrating you to like, you know, or you can get better servers. And Yeah, and obviously you've got to run, you know, the cost of running these servers isn't cheap. You know, you've got to yeah, factor yeah. that in as well, like I, cooling. It, it's going to be like the total cost of... Co- total cost of ownership. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the comparison. And the staff <laughs> must be quite a big component of that. And you must need, I'd imagine, you still, like you say, you're going to need some people to look after this stuff, but probably a few people can look after a mass a lot of stuff because you you're not dealing in the physical world anymore mm. just dealing in consoles and apis and things and but then i guess it depends to what level you're abstracting away right like if you're using if you're doing infrastructure as a service that's obviously the lowest level yes and that therefore you've got all the problems you have physically it's just that you're not managing the physical hardware you've still got to deal with networking routing and all that kind of stuff, provisioning servers. Yeah, it's like rather than crawling under a table in a data center, you just yeah. click some buttons, but you still got to do it. But you've still got to go. Oh well, we now need to route from place A to place B, and that's not you know any decent size organization. That's not going to be as simple as it is. So, but then it's the next level up, right? And then it's like, well, okay, maybe we look at platform as a service. Yeah, which I think. Amazon RDS would be a platform as a service. Well, that's interesting. So I would have said that. Where does Heroku sit on this for you? For those of you that don't know, RDS is a database where you just say, give me a database and you can just check a box and say, I want to enable backups and you get loads of cool stuff and you can fire your DBA and be very happy about it. And sorry, DBAs. Um, Heroku is a completely different thing, which is for deploying code, which is kind of like you give it your project of code. So if you've got a node project or a, java project you say here's all the code and it understands that there's a config file as well builds it and runs it as long as it exposes a http port there's also workers but don't need to worry about that so you can 
it's not like they give you a server. They probably run it on AWS, but you never see any of the infrastructure at all. And yeah. then it can do things like load balancing. So you can say, I want five of these, but you still have one URL and it goes to one of the five round robin or something so yeah. that none of them crumble. But yeah, I know what you yeah. mean. Though. RDS is kind of... You're abstracting... So, so I don't know what... I would say they are different, but I don't think there's a different term for those no, two things. No, probably not in this industry. But but I know what you mean. There's a lot of um... maybe maybe RDS actually would be a so- software as a service because you're saying I want a database of this type, yeah, and it's giving you just that. Whereas what Heroku is giving you is uh, layers of technologies on top of each other that you're not seeing, right? Yeah. So you're getting your VM, you're getting a load balancer, you're getting deployment, and all of those things together, and that's more like Amazon's yeah. Elastic Beanstalk, yeah. where you're getting a front to back solution, and you're doing you're basically just deploying the code with some yeah. config. One big problem with AWS is the names for everything are absolutely ridiculous. And something we can link to for you is on Hacker News, somebody has made a cheat sheet of all the names and what they mean in real life, yeah. which is immense. So we will link to that and you can you can know what a As I've already used two of them, then I, people might already be scratching their heads. Yeah, just going, uh, they're, they're all absolutely crazy. But, but AWS tends to be, they've also got Lambdas, which has been quite a big... Yeah. I don't know if innovation is the right word, but it's quite a corny thing. So a Lambda is where you give it some code. Normally, it's I think it's going to be exposed over HTTP. So it's like a web service or something. You say, here's the code that I want to run when they hit my HTTP service. And it can scale very effectively to zero. So if no one's using it, it's just not there. But it can start up really quick. And you only pay for the seconds of compute time you use when the Lambdas are running. So yeah. if no one hits it, you pay nothing. If... A million people hit it, it can easily scale to that and it scales dynamically. You don't need to go in and press a button. They will just launch as many as are needed of your service. So AWS has some quite low-level components and then some sort of medium ones and then some quite high-level ones. So, I mean, that's what makes AWS complicated, right, is it? It's got all three of those things. Multi-level. And not split up in any sort of useful way. The Lambda thing is interesting, though. I think it's really it's really cool. But what you find is if you use Lambdas, is that that thing on its own isn't going to give you what you want. Yeah. Because you can't... You've got to then link it to a, an Amazon application gateway and then blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of pe- moving pieces. Yeah. And that's where AWS gets overly complicated. And I think that's where when I said before about where you're going to still need some guys to manage it is because you have those complexities. Now, they have a couple of products to help abstract that away again, Elastic Beanstalk, and they have OpsWorks, which is like a programmatic uh, definition of an application, and it just builds builds all the other complicated pieces for you. But if you're a startup, is is it too complicated? And the answer for me is yes. Yes, agreed. Yeah, the domains that I work in, I do not touch AWS. And you can probably hear from the stuff I'm saying, I'm not that experienced with it. And really, I think everything we're saying pretty much applies to Azure and Google Cloud, which are... Apparently, Google Cloud is easier. I haven't used that one, but you haven't used AWS and Azure. So AWS I used at the last place, and we use it a bit at the current place, and Azure a little bit at the previous place. They all have problems, and the problems are with complexity yeah. or lack of customization. Yeah, AWS just isn't very. It's it's the kind of thing where you feel like you might get a certification for it. It's oh, that you do. complicated. Or you, you can. You can okay. yeah, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very excited about the level up from that. That's kind of my thing. So most of the stuff that so we're talking more Heroku. like Heroku. So, that... so 
But we're going to call that, we'll call that platformers. Or I think that is the technical, I don't know, who cares? But it, it, so that is like, you give it some code and it runs. And that, so Heroku's quite old. It got acquired by Salesforce. I don't know how old it is. Maybe 10 years. It was the first one of those, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the one the that popularized one. it. And yeah. did a lot of stuff right and did not make as much money as you would think, actually. Their co- I mean, their costs were, they, they charge way, not, yeah. nowhere near enough for that product, right? It was really cheap. It was. It's kind of cheap, but kind of expensive because what would happen is when you were a startup, it was quite cheap, like 15 quid a month or 15 pounds a month, sorry. And you would, you'd think, oh, you know, this is pretty cheap. And then you'd get bigger, I guess, as a company. And then all of a sudden your bill's like a thousand pounds. And then you'd be thinking, if we were on AWS, we could be paying like a hundred pounds. Because, and then at that point, you've got the scale and you've got the engineers to move over. And you want to start doing more complicated things with data centers and regions and security. So you hire some dedicated DevOps guys. And the first thing they're going to say is, let's get off this Heroku. So it's kind of... But there's a new one, new kid on the block, which I'm a really big caveated fan of, which is called Now or Now.sh, which is a really... Sh- stupid name for a product because mm. of the seo when you google now you're not going to find the product now yeah. and when you try and talk about now it sounds like you're saying now which makes every conversation you have about now ridiculous <laughs> as you're about to find now so it's called, so, so the official name of the product is now it's now it's by a company called zeit z-e-i-t okay. which is really if you just google zeit that you'll find them and they're kind of like a silicon valley upstart and they have basically built something which it's similar to Heroku, but more modern. And it's all—it's pretty much all command line driven, as Heroku originally was. There isn't much in the way of websites, which I think is probably a good thing for programmers. And that's really cool. And they've just released V2 of their platform, which um, the, ca- the caveat is, is that I hope they don't listen to this and get mad with me. So they're a team of seven programmers who seem awesome. And they build the APIs of everything they build. I think, wow, why didn't I think of that? That's incredible. And it's going to like change the world. Then you try and use it in production. And before you know it, you're back on Heroku or AWS because wow. it just doesn't quite work. And I, I've emailed them a few times talking to them about robustness. And as you know, you are the, you compared to me, you're the robustness guy. And I'm the <laughs> um, throw caution to the wind. Oh, well, it will probably work, you know. And yeah. I'm not that fussed about uptime and SLAs and agreements. And, but, you need to be able to deploy your code and then it needs to run all the time. I would I would never use any of these products for a client. Right. Because I don't want to say to my client, like, oh, it's just not working and I don't know why. And I think there's a high probability. But all of those things can be fixed. And they're just focusing on iterating their product. And then they've just released a new version, which arguably was not what they needed. And it's very Lambda focused and it's really awesome. And, it, you know, you can deploy code really quickly and I think behind the scenes it uses all AWS stuff and the new version you can plug in different clouds apparently so you can say I want to use Google Cloud or Azure behind the scenes and it will it will, you get the same kind of API yeah. for the developer but it's really high level it's like one config file here's a folder full of stuff you can buy domain names on their thing on the command line you can buy a domain oh, cool. name on the command line and it's automatically attached and stuff it's really like so what's their USP compared to Heroku then? What are they trying to do differently? It's similar. Um, I'm trying to think what is different. So one thing that's quite different is that each deployment you do, so you run a command to deploy your code and it goes away and it builds it and it comes back and it gives you a unique URL with a hash in the URL. And every deploy you do gives you is immutable. 
and has a unique URL. And then they have a thing called, they have a concept of aliasing, which is where your main URL that you give your customers or your users switches between these kind of hashed URLs. Yeah. And so that means when you roll back, it's trivial because yeah, you've got two versions running and you just switch the alias. Yeah, it's just like a C name change, but you just run this command and say, actually, I want to go back to this one. And it just it just works. That's that's quite cool. I mean, Heroku may do that behind the scenes, but they've just made it a bit more explicit. Um, they also, there's little things like they use really, the tech is like, everything is like, HTTP two and it's just when it when it is working it is blazing fast like I've never had a problem with it being like the response times you can get on it are amazing it works really well with Node as well and it also runs Docker containers it's really cool it's like one of those things that like if I went to work for a big company and I couldn't use it anymore I'd kind of I mean I well to be fair I don't use it with clients but once it's done it's one of those things that you think. What they really need to do is make a self-hosted version that can be hosted mm. on-premise because it's the kind of tool that as a programmer in a big company, in my first job, it would have been immense if somehow they could have hooked it into their own infrastructure. Yeah, or, I was thinking that, yeah. Or a private, you know... Private cloud. Private cloud, like, firewalled off from the rest of the world. So it's an AWS, but the rest of the world can't get in. It would be amazing. But So it's, it's just really cool. I've not done it justice on why it's better than Heroku. It's just more modern, and the command, the API is really the new API is a clear cut above Heroku. So you have a config file. So you have a you build. I don't want to plug them too much, but I have I've used it once and it, it didn't work. Sorry guys, but it just didn't build my project. Which my project's built with one of their libraries because these are the same guys that made that terminal which we discussed in the first episode, the hyper terminal. Yeah which is the terminal, which just looks amazing. Uh, these guys have done that as well? Yeah, they've got a focus on like uh, UX, which is really strange for an, in, um, for an infrastructure company. Yeah. But the reason they have Hyper is that when they build new, first, new stuff of their platform as a service now, they demo it in Hyper so it looks sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they've built a whole terminal just for like demos. marketing. Yeah, and demos, but um, worth it. Um. But yeah, the new version, you can have a monolith repo with, say, some Node code and some Go code and some static HTML. And then in your file, you say, look, this folder is a Node project. Say you've got 10 JavaScript files with 10 different endpoints in. You can say, all of these, I want to be lambdas. Each file, and you can use like a glob. So you can say star.js, they're a lambda. And this Go thing, those four Go files, they're four lambdas. And my static stuff, I want to be on a HTML, like a CDN. Yeah. And then it will create 10 JavaScript lambdas, four Go lambdas, and host all the HTML on like an Edge CDM, which is in like 150 countries. And it's just, that's a next level. And like, it doesn't really, it's, I would say it's in beta. They don't use the phrase beta. It's in beta or alpha. It's not really ready for prime time. But the concept you're like, is amazing. Because to orchestrate that all yourself in AWS and have it so that you can, run a command i think the heroku interface though of just you run a command it takes your code from version control builds it and deploys it is a thing that almost all projects should use but i think a lot of projects can't use in the real world because your company might not want to use heroku you might want to use yeah so i think if whoever builds a tool that lets you maybe use a lot of the sort of you know like vp vpn sort of all the things they might want to do but in a tool like this it'll be amazing yeah so yeah that that's one of the big ones for me interestingly i think we should talk another time about uh monolithic 
repos, right? Yeah, it's yeah. An interesting, an interesting one um, where it's a bit up in the air at the moment. I think. Yeah, which the, is the right way. The to big go. boys will do it, and um, Facebook does, Google does. Yeah. But anyway, that's just. A, but yeah, then another time. Um, so, what language does it support? Anything then? It supports Docker, so more or less, yeah. The oh, new... you can run anything in. So, anything you can Dockerize, you can put. You yeah, can the, it as a. The the new thing has the concept of a builder, and you can write your own builder. And I think the base technology is Docker. So, I think you can. It supports a bunch of things that people and they themselves have already written builders for, but it can be extended. So, someone apparently wrote a builder for OCaml. I was listening to a podcast the other day with the founder. So you can now run OCaml in this thing. So I'm guessing that's anything. If yeah. O- if OCaml goes, then anything goes. But yeah. yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool. But I mean, Heroku is also just like, a you know, that's like a thing. And I think the main thing I've realized as as my career has progressed, these kinds of tools, if I can't have them, then I'm kind of like, because the reason I got in this game, we discussed it a bit in the last episode, but I like building things that people want. Mm. I don't want to build something. And I don't think all programmers are like this. Some people like building things for the sake of building things because it's a mentally stimulating intellectual challenge. And that is a valid thing. Like, you know, people do puzzles, people do math competitions. Yeah. They they love it. But I like doing things that I feel are important because that's what I get a kick out of. Maybe they're not important to the whole world, but they're important to some people somewhere. Yeah. And they're going to care. And I feel like not having these tools that are mainly in the cloud hinders the ability to get stuff done. You just know that you can do it quicker. That's the problem. You think- I guess you're thinking, though, if you're on your own, right? Because if you're in a big company, there are people that are going to do a lot of that for you, right? Yeah. Although imagine what they could get done if they could. It depends on the on the rule. There are often reasons why people aren't using these tools. But most of them probably are not not wanting to deploy stuff like that. I mean, some of them could just be internal web applications, right? You can never use Heroku or now.sh for internal facing websites, right? It just doesn't make any sense. No. And that's a problem, right? And a lot of the thing is in big organizations, a lot of what you're building are internal only projects, right? It's very small bits of it. You know, you could have a one website which the clients use and hates the internet, but then there's five or six things behind the scenes that's actually working away to give you that view, right? And, yeah. you know, web administration and stuff might just, be, you know, is all just hidden away and is all internal, at which point if you can't run those things internally, you're never going to, they don't They don't even make sense in yeah. those situations. Right? So I think there are some situations where the company could but doesn't want to. And I think that statement will date badly because I think a lot of the business leaders have realized like there's been a big push and i think a lot of big companies and big investment banks and big companies that i didn't think would pick this stuff up it's it's not it's quite mature now they've had four or five years to get their act together and they are doing it and so i'm hearing a lot of stories of people using the cloud in bigger companies in quite controlled yeah ways with teams looking after it but yeah they're getting to use they're getting some of the benefit but yeah the, the example you just gave that's probably at the moment the technology doesn't even exist to host something, say, on a platform like Heroku, but keep it so that only your organization can see it. So maybe it's like firewall or in a mm. private cloud. And that is one thing that Amazon have all, or not always done, but have had for a long time. You can use a lot of their services in your own um, VPC or what they call it, which is like your virtual private cloud. So it's yeah. your isolated infrastructure. Um, and you can access it without going over the internet is the other thing as well. Yeah. So that's another 
potentially big problem, right? Is that if you've got, you're like, okay, we're happy with storing our data in a, on the cloud in an encrypted form, but we don't want any of that traffic going over the internet so somebody could snoop it. You want it to only go through wire, you know, connectivity that you own. And with Amazon, you can do that because you can you can pay for direct connectivity from your data center to Amazon's. So I think what's interesting for me is that there are the cases where people just can't do this stuff because there are legit reasons. There are cases where they could, but they won't. And to me, it kind of makes no difference because the problem I have is like, I don't know why, but my mentality is if I'm building a website, let's say it's an internal website for a big company and there's George and I don't want to pick any more silly names, but there's, you know, George really wants this thing done. George and Paul, we could go after the Beatles. George and Paul and Ringo want the... <laughs> they, they all want this app really building and they'll be really happy when it's done. And for me, that's what, you know, that's why I'm here. But it doesn't change the fact that once I know these tools exist and I've seen them, it still takes me longer to build it for them yeah. than it would without them, even though it's inappropriate to use them. And so, but what's your solution there then, right? Like, it's, there easy, is no, it's easy to say I want to use them, even though it doesn't make sense. But you can't. So, what's you can't the quit. What's the that's, what's the different? But if you ever want to build anything internal, yeah, then yeah, which is why I changed my career around. Basically, it, I don't think I really realized it at the time, but that's basically what I did was because I realized the amount of smiles. I don't know. That sounds really corny. The amount of smiles I could put on people's faces in a year was was like the the amount of the amount of like, I think people call this impact is the sort of term people use, but the amount of like people I can make happy and meaningful software I could build was l- the was less per unit of time. So in a year, I'd look back at that year and be like, oh, I did a couple of projects. Whereas if I'm just hacking on like, and I can use Heroku and I can put some stuff in Google Docs, like through an API or there's another one called Airtable and I can use Stripe to take payments and all these other things we're talking about. And I can use an, you know, an AWS database because, you know, whatever, that's what I needed. I can just physically, I can look back and feel like I've accomplished a lot more. In reality, it's not really true because if you think about it like super rationally, you're like, oh, I work for, you know, Corporation X and they have these constraints on their business. That means we need to use a private cloud None of those tools are therefore applicable because I can't get out to Stripe and all that stuff because that's not what they want to do and they don't want user data leaving. Yeah. And so, you know, and then you put in good work, but you still end up, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like the distance you've traveled. If you use the analogy of like in a car, that's not a good analogy. It's like how much you feel like you've built in terms of features is still less because everything's harder. It's like you're fighting against various factors and yeah. it, it has to be done that way and like i i, I, I guess know, it's less efficient is what you're saying yeah yeah the efficient efficiency is lower yeah and i basically now only choose to work in places where the efficiency is is quite high but when was the last time you worked in a company of more than 10 people um my first job was a really big company twenty five thousand, and the second job was a company of about 50 yeah and then after that um the one after that was big again yeah, um, and the one after that was a bit bigger, but I'm often working on smaller projects in teams. It did, the, the thing is, right there, I think a lot of the places you're working, you have the opportunity to 
there's no pre-existing the thing is they're all new right so there's yeah, no pre-existing technology that you have to deal with yeah I, so it's easy then right because greenfield's always easier than brownfield. yeah so green so greenfield also i'm th- not sure i like those terms to be clear yeah but they sound but they, 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 Gre- greenfield for those of you who are not familiar with these terms greenfield is when you start a project from scratch with no existing stuff it's the same as when you build houses you build a new house on a New well, bit of land. New bit of land, yeah, that's well, not new, but like some, you find like a field that's empty. Brownfield is is where you're coding and there's already some stuff that's been built and you have to edit it and you've got what people call a legacy. So like, you know, old code, which you've got to make sure that it still works. And yeah. that is always harder. And I don't work in general if I have a choice. I don't work in Brownfield stuff either because the same no, metric. It's the same, it's the, awful. The same metric that I just quoted, which is like, I want to look back in it, uh, over my year and be like, how much stuff did I build that I cared about and other people cared about is always worse than Brownfield. I don't think it means that that work is less valuable to the company. That, that's just It's just a fact of life, but I don't... But it's not as enjoyable, right? No, For example, if, Brownfield projects are, not, are hard, like you said, and I, the reward is less. I don't know what kind of people... I to me, you have to be a strange kind of person to be like that. I have met a few people along the way in my career that I feel they accept that fully and they are okay with it. But for me, it's just not what motivates me. So it's have you met people that you think would be yeah really happy in those sorts of things? Well, yeah. you get what you see is people get attached to their software, right? So then it's like, well, you either need to, and then it gets to a point where your application is perhaps successful enough that you need to subsume other applications. Mm. And then it's like, well, now you've got to, you, there's a, there's a project there, right? Which is to decommission other application X to become, because you're going to replace it with that happened at my first place a lot yeah. where they're trying to rationalize because they've got way too many, because everyone, because everyone always wants to do greenfield. You end up with this problem at the end state, which you've got, a thousand project, a thousand applications where there's a load, there's a considerable amount of overlap between some of them. So at some point, somebody goes, "Well, we've got three. I think at some point they had ten risk systems or something, ten different independent applications calculating risk, and they were like, right, we don't need ten, we need one. Yeah. We can't get to one, so let's try and aim for three. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> with what they said. Um, but there's some people there going, you know what? That's for me." You know, because they picked the three that they were like, these are the three best ones. Yeah. So now we need to subsume the other ones. And there's people that own those three have that emotional attachment to it, I assume, where they're uh, like, okay. you know what I mean? They're like, I lo- you know, this is my our application and we want it to be good. I was going to suggest that maybe they're just serial killers. Yeah, well. Or that they have something else wrong with them. They were, I don't know, just something went wrong in their life and then this is the dark path. I don't enjoy it either, actually. I've only done it uh i've done it twice where um once where i was doing that sort of thing taking over a a very similar application and subsuming it in a separate place where they had an existing system but in that situation we just started again we just had a clean break yeah in the last two places actually just a clean break yeah and that sort of is greenfield you've got to do the migration i think that's fine yeah i'm not bothered if the code that i'm writing is necessarily trailblazing a new thing that doesn't necessarily bother me that much because it will still make someone happy i just want to see the progress of what i'm building but you can work in a big organization and affect a lot of people right yeah like um like my my wife is currently she's a ux designer 
and she is redesigning the login screen, the client login screen for the investment bank she's working in. Mm. That that application has a hundred thousand users globally. That's all, yeah, that's ridiculous. But it's only a login screen. Yeah, and it's not particularly interesting. It's been done before. Yeah, <laughs> but she's redesigning it, and the output yeah. of her work will yeah, be yeah. that hundred thousand people globally who use this investment bank for their, their services will see that redesigned thing. So I guess it's that, I know you use that word of impact. It's difficult to measure. And like you say, I think everyone's different, but yeah. I would say I'm not that bothered about a login screen. Whereas at that point, it's really important and they need to look good because it makes, you know, first impressions and things like that. So as you know, I definitely see that different people have different impact. Yeah. For me, I'm less bothered about whether it's um, a public-facing impact versus a private internal-facing impact, I guess. Yeah. Um, but similarly, you know, it's difficult for me to say... It's difficult for me to necessarily appreciate your point of view and vice versa, perhaps, because the technology I use is not going is never going to be um, modernised like that. Yeah. KDB, right? It's not going to be in that situation. So... Yeah. Um, I'm always going to be, as long as I use this technology, I'm always going to be constrained by old-fashioned, to some degree, problems, which is infrastructure-level problems. I should just say that because it's easy for me to denigrate that what you're trying to say, but I'm coming at it from an angle where that isn't even an option for me. And if it was, I'd probably be on your page as well. Yeah. Because, you, you, you know, if you say you can get a 30% efficiency gain by switching to technology x y and z i don't know why you'd say no yeah right if you're thinking it the other way around yeah trying to justify switching from an old technology to this new more efficient yeah. way i was sort of disagreeing with you initially right of the, the switch but then if you reverse it it makes a lot more sense yeah it's you- weird i'm realizing as we're talking about this that this is the core cool thing that i wanted to talk about today this was what was kind of not under my skin but I have not worked anywhere for about four years that's not had what I, in my subjective mind, is quite a high efficiency value. Mm. Like the technology or the cloud services or whatever, the programming languages, all of those things, Brownfield, Greenfield, it all, yeah, all the technology has a high efficiency and I can get quite a lot of stuff done. And the more stuff I can get done, the better in the, in the, in the, in the fixed amount of time. Yeah. And that, I think, it's funny that one of the things that's very funny I've found about my career is that I'm not, I, I haven't really been able to pinpoint what does and doesn't motivate me. I just gather data about when I'm sort of happy and sad at work and I have to try and reverse engineer what it is. This mm. is one of the only ones I've figured out. I think there are other factors that I've not, even about myself, let alone what motivates you or a, or a DBA yeah. or, or you know someone that likes working on brownfield projects. I think everyone's a bit different. But this is this is something. And the reason that I wanted to talk about cloud services is because of all those different levers, it's probably the biggest one. Like I think if you said to me, oh, you can only ever use Java, I can still get stuff done. You're not turning down the efficiency that much. But if you said to me, you can no longer use Heroku and Stripe for a lot of the things I build, that's really big. That's probably like a 60, 70% you know, it's it's almost unthinkable how how big some of these cloud services they let you do really complicated like AWS is for all its sins. You know, like building that on your own, it, 
Yeah, it's, no, I agree. And it's not even like you could build something which was a subset of it, which was just what you needed, but then it's going to go wrong and it's going to break and you're going to spend loads of time fixing it. Yeah. Whereas when you just use their stuff, you know it's going to work and you because know, they've already done it once and they've done it well. So I guess that's really like why I've kind of... And obviously the thing is, is that we've had this big innovation where like this period, this 10 year period, roughly, I don't know when the cloud started. I feel it's like 2005 or six. Well, I think seven. AWS does, definitely wasn't first. I think, I feel like Rackspace is quite old. Oh yeah, yeah. That was before, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember when we left university, which was 2010, my tutor at the time was talking about pushing a lot of their heavy computations onto AWS. And that was like, because uh, they had their own server room yeah, for yeah. the duration that we were there i don't know if they still do I, i'd imagine it's got smaller i would hope it has mm. just taking up all that you know all those giant fees but i think yeah i think things things have changed so drastically in that time and i think you know a really interesting point you were saying that the reason that amazon can offer 60 or whatever it is services is because they've got a team working on a product finishing a product it being great and then they can all collectively move on to the next one. Rather yeah. than, say there's a team of 60, rather than each individual one going to 60 different organizations and starting from like, okay, let's have virtual machines. Okay, let's have virtual networking. And then all the other things, they, they've they solved those problems and then go, you know what, now we're going to have, um, uh, you know, a, a no SQL databases as a service. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that's awesome. I mean, you know even just the database as a service where you can pick any database technology that sends, you know, you can even run Microsoft SQL server in in RDS. There must be, I mean, I assume there are probably a few large, high-paying organizations that want that. But still, you'd be like, well, we'll just run one. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So the fact that they've worked their way through and then because they keep working, they just keep adding stuff, things that you would never even necessarily think that you yeah, need. Yeah, yeah, really great. And everything, yeah, basically it's like, some companies have centralized things that everyone needs. They've done it really, really well. Yeah. And they've poured more time and investment than any, well, most of the users of that technology ever could have because they yes. just have a dedicated team of two or three that will kind of, you know, it'll be impossible for them to build something that's as good as like RDS or EC2, yeah. which yeah. is the server one, or Heroku or whatever it is, or Stripe, Google Docs. I mean, Google Docs, I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's just a spreadsheet. Like I'm just thinking of, the spreadsheet one, which yeah. sheets, sheets, yeah. Where, which is, I mean, that's it's been around for ages and it's not changed very much at all. It's in fact it's stagnated in my opinion, but it's still like, immense. Like if you set out to build that, yeah, like you build an Excel for, replacement is what they've start. They did right, they, yeah, yeah. They were like, let's build a replacement, an online replacement for Excel. Yeah, that sounds impossible. Yeah, still, even. and even now, even in two thousand and you know nineteen two thousand and twenty, that's a hard thing to do. So I think it's just you get to use all this stuff, but the cost of it is that because the only monetization model that currently really is working on the internet is that you run some code that's private and closed source on a server and then charge people for that thing, that we've not really found another monetization route, really. Like there's, And then it, I guess you've got people pay for stuff one off, then you know, one off, yeah. One off is unusual though for cloud based yeah, stuff that as matter. a service. So, subscription or advertising are the only two revenue generating models that work. So, like Facebook have got a load of closed source stuff that pe- other people might find difficult to replicate, although you could argue not. I think they're mainly protected by the, the network of all your friends are on Facebook, the network yeah. effects. And then they just, you know, monetize you through ads. And the only other way is that you just put your credit card in. And so, all of this data necessarily needs to live 
well, at the moment, we don't have the technology, but all this data lives on their servers, which is going to cause a problem for regulatory issues or some other sensitivity issues where people don't want their data residing elsewhere. That's probably the single biggest thing that blocks some of these things and sort of security. And then they're not talking to each other from security. So you can use AWS, you put it behind like a VPN in a private cloud, but then you can't use something else because talking, you know, there's no Google Docs behind a private cloud as far as I know. It's just on the open internet. So then you can't use that. But again, you might, again, they might have it now where you can route it privately. Yeah, maybe there are these these sorts of things. The thing thing I wanted to say there actually was um, what AWS did, I think, is provide those building blocks that allowed these more complicated services to build on top. Yeah. Because Heroku, right, I think has, my understanding anyway, might not be perfect, is Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk is the equivalent of Heroku. I think so, yeah. But that didn't exist for a long time after, until a long time after Heroku came around, right? Using so, AWS. Yeah. So what, they, what, what the people at Heroku have gone and done is said, well, we can, we can programmatically spin up and spin down all of these pieces that we need to host a website on AWS. So if we just do that, and then that's a value add on top of AWS, and then we just charge for that. Yeah, that's then you know it's a level above, and they've they've they they've used those existing technologies that AWS or you know Azure, but AWS were, were definitely the first big one. It's that sort of build. It's that layering on top of technology, right? And then now SH are sort of seeing what Heroku have done and maybe doing things slightly differently or abstracting even further. I guess it's levels of abstraction. Yeah, it's all about levels of abstraction. And I, and as you know, and maybe the listeners don't know about me, I'm at the I'm at the top level on this stuff. Mm. I don't I don't like low level things. Jazz is a little bit more low level than I am. Yeah, I, I find it more interesting whether I want to work in it day in, day out. Yes. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's kind of cool to see how things work like that. But because I think I'm highly motivated by how much like impact I'm having over time. Like I don't wake up every morning and think must have impact today, some days, but not every day. But I think it's just, I get miserable if I, if the inverse is true. Like I'm like, I spent all day today debugging some boring issue that shouldn't really have been a problem. If we could have just used like this service, which we can't for legitimate reasons, but I'm just like, yeah. I'm kind of like, I'm out. I think, I think the amount of money someone would have to pay me to work on those problems is a lot more. One point. F- I'm trying to put a number on it in my head as we're talking, but it's like maybe 1.5 to two times. It's a lot. It's like people can't afford it. Kind of a lot. It's yeah. kind of like why would they pay someone twice as much? It's interesting though how greenfield and brownfield work, and generally like work that I think both you and I wouldn't like is not generally paid. Sometimes it's paid more. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is. Like investment banks pay more, and I think that you're getting paid a premium because you kind of have to put up with some stuff. Yeah. And that's presumably yeah, that's kind of what it is, but not really with the tech. Sometimes you could go and work for an investment bank, get paid loads of money, and they're like, we're going to build this green thing. You know, in the, I've certainly been paid quite generously in the in the last few years for doing things which I thought were super fun and weren't those things. You yeah. know, weren't brownfield and I, could, and I, you know, I could use the cloud. And so I, I don't, yeah, I don't. It's a strange. I think. I think that. I think that probably the only thing there is that there's there's enough people to go around. Yeah, that they don't need to worry about that as much, right? The pay doesn't need to be increased. They only need to do that if there were a bunch of if there were everyone was like if no one would work in those projects, then yeah, know. maybe there's just a lot of serial killers out there and sort of people, people who, you just know, love have just, you know, bad childhoods and love just 
you know, stabbing themselves with a knife. <laughs> just over and over again. But just like, it doesn't hurt anymore, so it's okay. I think it just depends how you rationalise it. I can see that those people, maybe they're just like a... I think some people, I think, I am. I hope people go, you know, the example of the risk systems one, something like that. I'm assuming people are going into that knowing this is going to be an absolutely, really, really, you know, it's going to be an unbelievably difficult project. Yeah. But I think some people, those sort of people must be getting off on the difficulty rather than it's not even difficulty from a technical point of view it's difficulty from just an execution point of view right? yeah like, how the hell do we get this done this is holistically from the high level this looks impossible we've got to bang our heads together and solve it yeah and, and you I, and i would find it a nightmare but for them it's like people run marathons and people do all yeah things yeah and, and i think i think it's that it's just the difficulty of it that attracts them to it and it's like that's going to be really hard because i don't i don't think you'd ever be like you know we're going to go write this new system it's actually going to be really easy and we'll do it in you know, a week, you'd be like, well, yeah. I'll go do something a bit more interesting. And I guess it's just how far on that scale you are. Yeah. And some people might just be literally finding the most difficult projects. Because I guess if you, maybe the thought is, if you can, if you succeed, you're going to be, well, you know, the impact there is going to be very high, but the whereas you have high impact, your success rate is also a lot higher. Yeah. Whereas in those, those ones, you know, I would say, you know, you've got a 70% failure rate in, a big investment bank to decommission own software just because oh, it's yeah. so hard. Those projects fail all the time. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, right? But you're, I assume people are going in going, this is going to be really hard, but we can do it this time. A high attrition rate, maybe a high suicide rate, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly, I don't know. They but I, I, I think it's... It, yeah, I guess if you can't do it, you just go, look, that's... You know, we can't, but... It needs doing. It's one of those things, like, it, it needs doing, and there is benefit to a person. It just doesn't... For me, it just doesn't feel rewarding. But the one of the other things I sort of wanted to talk about in this episode was so we've touched on we've sort of talked about AWS and Heroku we kind of talked about Google Docs and there are a few other tools there's more and more tools coming along and the last year or two from a, especially from a startup perspective there are a lot more tools I think Stripe has been an absolute revelation so for, for payments yeah for payments. so for those of you that don't know Stripe's a payments gateway I think is what they call it. And what that means is they've built a nice API where you can give the credit card number, expiry date, and CVC or whatever it's called, and it will take a payment from your customer. And then you can do things like save them and save multiple cards. And there's regulatory stuff in most countries about that. And you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about any of that. And if you just want to put a credit card form on your website in like five minutes, they've got a piece of JavaScript that you can load on the page and puts a little thing. Yeah. And they're really, there are already people doing payments. And then it was a couple of young entrepreneurs came through and they made it very developer centric because they realized the people that were putting this stuff on websites, especially at the beginning of startups that got big were people like us. And, yeah. you know, the business people, you know, the fee rates, they just had to match the others. And then it's like, shall we use Stripe or shall we? I recently integrated, um, Braintree into something, which is a yeah, which competitor. is PayPal's one. Yeah, it got acquired by um, PayPal, yeah. and all I was thinking the entire time was, I really wish I was using Stripe because it's just just like the doc, everything about it as a developer that yeah. they really get it. Their docs are like world class. They'll have like each API thing. You in the right hand side, you can then see it will tell you a bit about it, and then you there's like a box where it shows you the code for like ten different languages. Yeah, yeah and it's like nice. it's so good. Like it's it's. Yeah, we, we, we integrated with PayPal and another payment provider. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But yeah, they were complicated. Not complicated. Well, yeah, complicated. They're using things like XML. Yeah. And 
you've got to have like a public accessible pay uh, URL for them to hit oh, no. once things have been authorized and things. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, I definitely appreciate Stripe. We just couldn't use Stripe for because of the business we were in. What's yeah? You had like a legit yeah. regulatory reason yeah, that you couldn't yeah. use it because it was kind of a gambling related thing. Yeah. But what's really interesting about Stripe though is that then. It's kind of where these cloud services start working together that's really interesting. So there are tools that sit on top of Stripe. So once you've got a business which is generating, say, $1,000 of revenue a month and you want to you know, track it, there are like apps which can you can connect to your Stripe and they'll give you like a breakdown and tell oh, you where okay. revenue is coming from. And there's a whole bunch of other businesses. And there's I will link to one of them, which I can't remember the name of. It's just all these other things you can then just plug in. Because they've got good APIs. It's kind of, I think some people call it the API economy. Like I'm always looking for good APIs. Yeah. So Stripe's a big one. Google Sheets, there's a new kid on the block called Airtable, which is basically Google, it's Google Sheets, but each column has a type. Yeah. So you can say, this is a date, this is text, this is a number, this is a currency. Yeah. So it's kind of more like a database, but it's still a, you know, it's a sheet. Table. It's a yeah. table. And then that has really good APIs, whereas Google Sheets APIs are like OAuth nightmare they're rubbish whereas with this it's like you want to read all your data out of your spreadsheet you like click a button to go to the docs and it gives you like the line of code you need for that spreadsheet in the language you want so it's like two lines of code and you've like got it's not perfect but it's pretty great you can insert data so on lots of small projects i'm working on now i'm using i'm using this as a database because if you're just doing something doddy for yourself you you it's basically like a database because it's a table and you get the visible like yeah. non-technical people can see the see the table and right? so i'm hearing of a lot of startups and even bigger companies where like you know that scenario where it's like oh we need to build a dashboard for this or some um you know we need to be able to create read update and delete things a yeah. crud app and we just need to build this rubbish website which all it does is like show you the data you yeah, yeah, yeah well now they just link it to an air table and they say if it's wrong you know you don't change it that often but if it's wrong just go in there and, and change just update it, it yeah just update it manually it's kind of and it's it's a bit of a revelation really and they, they're charging i think they're being quite successful they charge like ten dollars a month or something and it's like yeah for small applications it's perfect right yeah it's, yeah for like little things i think it's one of those things like it, it won't scale no but for certain things where you know the number of rows is going to be low or you're just trying something out, you want to prototype something, you can... Yeah, rather than data. being like, I've got to set up a database, define the table, define my interface to, you know, yeah. build the inserts and selects and stuff. Yeah, you could just be like, get get rid of all of that. Simplify, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, that, it's opinionated to some degree, right? Yeah. Like, this is how yeah. it's going to be done. And you're like, that's fine. But it's a really useful building block. Another one is um, Zapier or Zapier, which lets you connect cloud things to other cloud things. So you can say, when I get an email in Google Mail, everything has to be public, which is what it comes back to this private cloud, public yeah. cloud thing. Because everything's accessible, they have integrations with like Dropbox. Like Slack, Google right? Drive. Slack. Slack as well is a really good example. And then you can, all, you, all of this cloud stuff can then talk to Slack. And mm. now when I pay money on my business credit card, I get a Slack. Mm. And if any of my team did, I, I get a Slack saying, you've spent this money. Yeah. Or your card got declined. And it's like, this isn't, this is amazing. Yeah. It's like all these things talking to one another. But yeah, Zapier. So I met a lady who was running a business. I was talking to her about becoming a client and she was running a basically a bakery, like an online bakery. So if you if it's your wife's birthday and you want to buy her a nice big cake, which I'm sure she would appreciate, mm. lactose-free cake, yeah. you can go to her and you can say, oh, I want this kind of cake. It's a birthday. It needs to be like lactose-free. Yeah. And then she'll she'll put the project up to a bunch of cake makers who will then bid on it and then they'll come back and then she connects them. So it's kind of like a marketplace for like you want a cake. 
Okay. But she built a prototype, which she was like doing about 100, 150 cakes a month, multiple thousands in revenue using Stripe, Zapier, like Google Docs, and a bunch of other tools. She hadn't written a line of code. Wow. Not written a line of code. That's impressive. Yeah, running this whole business, like MailChimp for the... um, Yep. For sending out emails, it's it's just like it's a different world, and it's a world that was not available to us. Like even maybe two or three years ago, some no. of these tools weren't. No, there. you couldn't be like, I'm going to start a bakery marketplace without knowing how to code. Yeah, that I mean, particularly coming out of university, that would be impossible. It would be absolutely impossible. And now, you know, I'm, I met. Well, I couldn't believe it. I was gobsmacked. I yeah, thought, thought I was out of a job for a second yeah. until she told me how much human effort there was into every... Because that system... Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. If you built that system as a developer, you know, it would just run and... You wouldn't need any intervention. It's easy peasy. She's like, you know, killing herself because it is still quite manual. But the thing is, I think with startups... But it's an an enabler, right? Yeah. It enabled her to start without having to worry about how am I going to afford to pay for a piece of software. And she probably built it quicker than even the best software engineer could have built that system. And she could tweak it. The editability of it's much higher, yeah. whereas software is quite bad. And she knows exactly what she wants because she's the, she's the business person and she's building it, right? Yes. It's not that because then you've got the problem of communicating what you want to a developer. And if this cake idea was for the birds, then she could have, you know, she's invested a lot less time and money. Yeah. And it's, in general, it's, the it's you're almost at a disadvantage if you try and start a business as a coder because your instinct is to code everything when probably actually the best course of action is to do what she did. And she built a whole prototype and said, there's an essay by Paul Graham where he says, do things that don't scale. And she did a lot of things that definitely didn't scale. When I met her, mm. she looked very tired. But yeah. it had worked. MVP, she, right? You've always got to aim for the MVP. Yeah. Just, just that just about gets the job done initially, right? Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of the... Because, yeah, we, we made that problem at our startup. It was a difficult problem. And there was no obvious way route to market without the full product yeah so then you you're putting a lot of money in to get your mvp which happens to be the whole product yeah mvp meaning minimum viable product not most valuable yeah, the, player. the viable was like yeah so it's like the, what's the the minimum thing you can build that yeah. is viable so like people will hopefully want to use it and it's or a, can use it at least and, yeah and it's a product yeah <laughs> yeah so i think you know doing anything again it's like what's the minimum it's hard as a developer to be like we just don't need to worry about these things oh it's tough you've got to just be like look let's just what's the absolute minimum we can do to get this out the door in a in a workable way and what all of these cloud services have done have made that mvp do a lot more for a lot less yes because if you were like our mvp you know we have to accept payments but there's no stripe you know, you have to go directly to some acquiring bank or something. That's going to be months and months of effort, right? Yeah. Because you've got to talk to whoever your bank is to oh, accept man. card payments. You need on to your become behalf. like a merchant bank or something. Yeah, mental. yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, right? Crazy. So, that, and I imagine 15, 20 years ago, that won't be that far from the truth. And these businesses just didn't get started because yeah, who's going to be could. bothered with that? But with them, you can say, right, our MVP can accept payments and it's only going to take us an extra hour, say, for example. And then you've got a product that can accept payments. That's 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 brilliant. It's a really exciting. It's an ex- it's what a time to be alive. With what all a these. time! What a time! But I'm trying. I'm trying to think if there are any other good ones. I use. We may need a dedicated episode for this one. But I use a thing called Firebase a lot, which is a yeah. programmery one. It's kind of like MongoDB. So it's a. It's like a NoSQL. Yeah, it's a document storage database. I believe I'm not an expert on NoSQL or SQL. 
and uh, <laughs> just none of the if it has SQL in it I'm out <laughs> but it's like a giant JSON object that you store it's a bit like uh, it's like a big it's almost like a um, what's the word the state in a Redux application yeah it's basically it, that yeah it is yeah, it's just a giant JSON object and it and it can store stuff and it can handle common sign up flow so it has APIs for people signing up logging in resetting passwords and it will send them emails when they reset their password so like all this stuff that goes in nearly every app you build yeah. it's kind of got covered if you want to send notifications for apps it's got that too it's got it's got it got bought by Google and they've kind of made it more robust which is good but they've also tried to suck you in and make it's very convenient it now has analytics and all these other yeah, things yeah. and you're kind of like yeah but it, it is you for certain applications if you know what you're doing with it it can cut the time that it takes to build it, it basically really covers login and storage right? yeah those are the two big ones and there are a few other things it does as well and the storage knows about the login so you can secure users data against their login just built into the database yeah. and it's super and everything's also real time so you can build like you could build a facebook or a reddit clone off it really easy i don't know it scales to like a million users so for getting things yeah started it's pretty good a million concurrent users which is a lot i think yeah depending on what you're doing so yeah it's really powerful and it shaves the time in half for building things so it's yeah it's just it's just very cool and like all these libraries as well it, <sighs> mm. So I did want to make an honourable mention to something that I know even big organisations still haven't got onto yet, but is, I think, almost a critical thing for a business to have, and that's Office 365. Oh, yeah. So Office 365 is basically just, rather than running your own exchange server, which any, I think, big organisation probably would, and have Word and Excel, you know, it's all cloud-based. Yeah. But then because it's Microsoft, it's all it's all built on Azure, and then the really interesting bit actually is they have focused that product a lot more on um, hybrid cloud deployments. So obviously Office 365 is entirely cloud-based. Yeah. But they have built it under the assumption that a lot of the people who are going to want to move to this already have existing yeah, yeah, private yeah. stuff. Yeah. So they have a lot of a lot of functionality to support these difficult um, technical problems that we were talking about where you've got internal facing applications. So you can do things like you can they have a way for you to do auth through your email address and standard password, but for any internal application. Oh, that's great. And also for other cloud applications as well. So if any cloud application supports SAML. Yeah, SAML. So Slack does, and a few other things we've done. So you can just log straight into Slack. So it's all automated. Yeah. That's great. So you only have one login. It's all single sign-on. Yeah. So that's quite nice. And they've, they've done that. And I think that, to be fair, for me, I just think it's really good. I know Google have the same thing as well. Yeah. But it's that you've got to have, you've got to decide right who's our identity owner, which which product's going to own all of our identities, whether that's Google Apps or Office Three Hundred and Sixty Five. Yeah, yeah. And then, okay, how do we spread this out? Because if you've got a company of more than say ten or fifteen, if you're like, oh, you've got a login for like eight different things, which I imagine going back to that woman that you were talking about running the bakery having to log into each oh, separate yeah. piece every time. You're going to be like, you just oh, want to abstract all that away. And I like that. And I think, Office, you know, Microsoft are trying that. They've got their Slack competitor now, yeah, Microsoft they, Teams and things like that. They're, it's they're, weird how they're 
how they've changed over the same period, actually. I was going to say they've gone from strength to strength. I'm not sure they've gone from... They've definitely gone from strength to... They've turned a corner. They've turned it? a corner, yeah. And they're and at the moment, it's, inter- it's interesting in these big companies, they seem to have hits and misses. I think Amazon, Amazon and Microsoft have been the two top performers of the big companies. And Facebook has had a lot of PR problems, although it's arguably still doing quite well. And Google doesn't, in my opinion, has done very little that is meaningful in the last five years. They, they've released a lot of products and then they all slowly die off. And, yeah. and the, some of them are really good ideas, like Chromecast was excellent. Google Mail and Google Apps was really good, but they've they kind of given it a bit of love recently. But I really, Inbox is a good example of that. Yeah, they kind of they kind of integrated most of those features into Mail, though. To be fair, so maybe that was a success. But Hangouts died. Like all these things, where it's kind of like you just don't really feel like they know what they're doing. I, I guess that's always a risk whenever you're going to use any cloud product that we describe is yeah. it what happens if it goes away firebase is probably the most terrifying one for me because it's, it's owned by google it's, it's well, <laughs> now it's owned by google i feel a bit better but when it was a startup there was a big competitor called pars that got bought by facebook and then they shut it down and if you built an app on pars you were properly you know changing your database has got to be in the top three worst hardest things to do yeah in like brownfield for development um, yeah definitely almost. yeah it's, and if your database is like oh sorry we're turning it off in six months and you have no way of extending that right because obviously yeah. if you're running internally you go well we'll just keep it running yeah unsupported you get yeah. more time but no they hard deadline they they turned it off i mean they gave them a warning but it just firebase had won and even now it's like you know what might happen with Firebase, and they might force you to upgrade, and you don't you don't have control. That's the that is the, the thing control. with the cloud. Yeah, yeah, you don't have the control. And I think it's I think it's interesting though. I think it's not fundamental. I mean, this is getting more pie in the sky. I don't think there's a fundamental reason that running versions of these this software it has to be centralized like this. But that's just at the moment with the technology we have. That's the only way we can do it. So everything is centralized, and there's only you know you can't run an old PARS instance. I think they did open source it, actually. So the only person who ever really embraced that from the start was GitHub, right? Yeah. They had their very expensive enterprise. What a cloud service that we missed for for programmers. And that's that's been massive. And now GitLab and then the dreaded, dreaded Bitbucket, <laughs> which I, I'm not a fan of. No, no, but as in, um, I think actually, I actually think uh, those things are probably a separate discussion. Yeah. But yes, I agree. It, it is, a you know, a game changer. Um but I think there's a lot to talk about in those. But they, all, they from reasonably early on, had a on-prem version. Yeah. Now, I think that's maybe because they were around before cloud was really a thing. Like, they were sort of just before AWS and those sort of things. So, yeah. so they must have been like, well, you either use us. But everyone's like, no way, because they were one of the first sort of cloud products that everybody wanted to use. Yeah. So then they were like, well, we have to offer this as a... It's interesting, yeah. Whereas people like... So Slack were thinking about doing that. They, they backed they, out. And they haven't. I think you're right. I think the timing was important. I think if Slack had been invented two years before it was, and there's no reason technically that Slack could not have been invented. It could have been. Yeah. It's not technically that innovative. But yeah, no, they, they were quite, I'd imagine there was a tremendous amount of pressure on them to do on-premises deployments of yeah. Slack. I mean, Slack's so ubiquitous now, we haven't even had to explain what it is because it's like, who, who has not seen it? It's a chat app, which is very good mainly except on mobile but um but yeah they're and the new logo i haven't seen the new logo oh i quite like the old one yeah it's gone is it gone yeah 
That's it. Apple hatched. Your app will probably update on you. Oh, I'll have to look later on. Um, that would be so, in follow-up. Slack's weird though, right? Because I think um, I still think that they're going to harm their adoption by not. So I think Slack's one of the ones that I think you still need to, because I think a lot, you know, anyone that's regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or someone like, you know, a financial regulator is going to need to have, I would imagine, that sort of level of, you know, they're going to want to have the data on their data since they want to be able to have access to it at all times. Yeah. Even though they can add all the features, I just... They have added all the features. So there's, there's a feature there's where a... you can download all the chats as a giant JSON file. Yeah. That's like their solution. All the chats ever. Which Office 365 does the same thing. Like, if you're like, I need to download the inbox of some person, you yeah. can do that. But I just, I feel like I was surprised that they stopped, that they decided not to. But maybe they, again, they've, they've sensed that enough, big enough companies are thinking about moving. Yeah, I'm just surprised that Slack. But yeah, you're right. It's another, you know, magic. Think about when we, well, when we left university, actually, if we wanted to talk in a group, it was Hangouts, right? But. Yeah. But now, I mean, Slack's a completely different ball game. Yeah, channels. Yeah, Discord as well. There's all these tools for business and just leisure that are just. But I think I think it's it's just it's just it has. I mean, I think it's easy to forget where we were. Yeah, I think that was. I think you said it right at the beginning, and I think that was what was really interesting. Yeah, think back to where we were ten years ago, which you know, depending on who's listening to this podcast, some people might only been in the game two or three years, and they've just been had this yeah, the whole yeah. time. But for us, as old people, it's... relatively ten years ago, you know. A lot, a lot of the things we've described would be very hard. Yeah. To if you had nothing. Yeah. To I, start from scratch. I, I now regularly build things in three months, which I think would have more or less I would never have even attempted before this wave of technology yeah. because it's just the the amount it enables you. I think there's. I think we've not even really scratched the surface of like programmer specific tools. We've discussed a few like Firebase, yeah. GitHub is. I uh, think it's probably it's probably a. Uh, Again, it's a topic a bit like the testing one. It's so big yeah, it is. that we're really just sort of summarising things that we think are of interest. Yeah, yeah. Generally, but yeah, you could, I think you could have a deep, a deeper discussion on. You know, you want to build a website. These are the six things you're going to yeah. use and why. I think I've covered most of mine. I've at least given an honourable mention to. But yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult. I mean, it is it, it is a great time to be developing. But it's yeah, it's just I find it strange for myself where I'm I'm just sort of this massive hypocrite that acknowledges that doing brownfield work is logically valuable because someone wants it and it needs to be done. I just have absolutely no interest in actually being the person that does it. It's yeah, strange. I would agree with you. I think it's 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 not something that's particularly enjoyable. Oh, it's maybe the it takes so long to reach the point where you feel like you've achieved something that it's that that reward is too far away yeah, and not guaranteed. Particularly. That's how it feels for me. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like I, I'll almost forget. Yeah, you, you have like a short, or I have a short attention span. And yeah, if I'm working on something for nine months and then you deliver it, I'm like, ugh. But there's also a lot of choice, right? That's the other thing. Yeah. You have a lot of what you have, there's a lot of opportunities to pick what you want to do. Yeah, so then we're spoiled, aren't we, really? But that might change, and then you'd be like, "Well, I have to go do this brownfield thing now." I've yeah, I've wondered about that, or when I can only do JavaScript and no one wants to hire me. There'll always be legacy JavaScript. Thank God. It's what Java was like twenty years ago, right? All that crap code right now, I'll be <laughs> brownfielding that. Yeah, well, that's where Java is now, right? So yeah. twenty years ago, it was all the rage; everyone was doing it, and now it's dying out to some degree. I mean, well, a lot it's, of... still, it's still kind of going, but yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, it is it is interesting. But yeah, that thing I think that's it really. We've we have discussed the cloud almost back to front, I feel. Done a pretty yeah. good job. And as well, I think we've yeah, we've interspersed some other interesting observations there as well. I think it's not necessarily specific about development, but just um, just a, I think for me it was just appreciating the cloud. Yeah. To like, and what it is. Uh, you know, obviously a buzzword and we hate the buzzword, but um, you know, star as a service. I think that's it from me, really. Yeah. Let's eat. <laughs>